If you know me, something you might know about me is that I love podcasts. Anyone else listen to podcasts frequently? Yep. I feel like they're kind of in this unique spot in our culture where they're definitely a thing, um, but people like either really go to town or they just listen to like one a year. Uh, and there's really no in-between. Personally, I have feasted on podcasts for the past probably about five years, and um, my diet and intake levels have fluctuated a little bit, but I'm always listening to something, it seems like. Uh, I remember last summer, I was listening to a podcast about knee health recovery called the ATG Podcast by Ben Patrick. I'm a big fan, love the work that he's doing in the like athletic recovery space, and I was watching his YouTube videos at the time also, and following some of his exercise protocols, and I had a powerful realization if I listened to Ben Patrick on his podcast or in one of his videos, I was significantly more likely to do his exercises that day. Like, it rose the chances from maybe being a 50-50 to like 100% likely that I would do the exercises. <clears throat> and this was a crazy realization for me. And then I kind of thought about it and realized that whatever I listened to drove me to act in a, cer a certain way. So if I listened to a Bible Project podcast, I was much more inclined to spend some time looking up the Hebrew word in the psalm I was reading. If I listened to the Disorder, every animated uh, Disney film podcast, I would want to watch whatever Disney film they were talking about. <laughs> if I listened to an Enneagram podcast, I was thinking about the Enneagram all day long and talking Cassidy's ear off about it. And if I listened to the leadership, like a leadership development podcast, I'd be thinking about how to implement healthy leadership strategies in my life. Do you know that what you listen to and who you learn from has a tremendous impact on how you live your life? Who are the main influences in your life? Is it your parents, your professors, social media influencers, podcasts, friends? And did you know that as Christians... We're called not only to be influenced by Jesus, but also to influence those around us. Last week, Brandon showed us a powerful verse from 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10 that says, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Brandon also talked about how this was what Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be. In fact, this isn't a very original thought on Peter's end. The original exists in Exodus chapter 19, verses 5 through 6, and it reads, If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Man, Peter, blatant. Spirit-inspired plagiarism. <laughs> it's almost as though God's plan hasn't really changed through the ages. God is intent on making a people group that will transform the whole world through the radical, distinct culture that they exhibit. Do you see yourself yet as a part of the culture-shaping church? Are you seeing the plan God has for your life to be representatives of God's heart to your fellow college students, to your friends, your family? In our anti-hero series, uh, we've been looking at characters exclusively from the Old Testament. 
And they all should have seen themselves as part of this Exodus 19 plan. You may have noticed that the way that we teach each of our anti-hero characters is really rooted in our understanding of the law, otherwise known as the Pentateuch or the Torah. This just refers to the first five books of the Bible. The reason for this is that Yahweh, the God of Israel, the same God we worship today, gave his people a game plan to fulfill their purpose as a nation. The nation of Israel was supposed to be a holy nation full of priest-like people who would be a shining light, an example to the other nations for how to live properly. And so that's what all the laws were about. They were Yahweh saying, how are we going to get this people to a place where they stop worshiping all the other gods that lead them into violence and other awful stuff? Deuteronomy 12, 29 through 31 says, Yahweh your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they've been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship Yahweh your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things Yahweh hates. Did you catch that? Don't inquire about their gods. Don't try to find out how they worship their gods. Don't listen to their podcasts because you will be tempted to worship Yahweh in this way and you're going to end up doing thing Yahweh, things that Yahweh hates. And this is going to lead us right into our passage for tonight. Uh, this week we're back in the book of Judges. And um, can I get my Bible pastors actually to, to come up? If you need a Bible, raise your hand. We're going to be reading a lot of Bible tonight. Uh, You can start to flip to Judges chapter 10. Judges chapter 10. Just put your hand up if you need a Bible. And uh, before we start in our passage, I'm going to pray. God, um, we thank you for your word. Thanks for your Bible. Thanks for these stories that you uh, selected for these authors to write that just really demonstrate um, real humans and real human struggles. Um, God, thanks that you are so clear in uh, what you desire, what your heart is like, and, uh, and that you showed us um, in your Bible. And so I pray that we would learn from you as you teach us through our character tonight. Amen. All right. Last week, we got to hear about the mighty, me see, me want, me feel, me act, Samson, <laughs> judge over Israel. <clears throat> this week, we're going to look at Samson's predecessor, Jephthah. That's G-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. Three H's all in one name. Who knew that was possible? (laughs) (laughs) J-E-P-H-T-H-A-H. So we're in Judges 10, and let's just hop right in. Judges 10, starting in verse 6. It says, Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of Yahweh. They served the Baals and the Ashtoreths, and the gods of Aram, the gods of Sidon, the gods of Moab, the gods of the Ammonites, and the gods of the Philistines. And because the Israelites forsook Yahweh and no longer served him, he became angry with them. He sold them into the hands of the Philistines and the Ammonites, who that year shattered and crushed them. For 18 years they oppressed all of the Israelites on the east side of the Jordan in Gilead, the land of the Amorites. The Ammonites also crossed the Jordan to fight against Judah, Benjamin, and Ephraim. Those are three tribes in Israel. Israel was in great distress. 
Then the Israelites cried out to Yahweh, We have sinned against you, forsaking our God and serving the Baals. All right. Do you remember the verse in Deuteronomy we just read? How the Israelites weren't supposed to, you know, be ensnared by inquiring about other gods. How are they doing? (laughs) Not great. These guys aren't just worshiping one other nation's god. uh, The author lists five different nations whose gods the Israelites serve. And things go really poorly for the Israelites too. Ironically, uh, the more nations' gods they worship, the more those nations oppress them. It's almost like when you worship another god, you become a slave to it. Verse 10 says that they cried out to their god to ask for help. But the very next verse, verse 11, Yahweh replied, when the Egyptians, the Amorites, the Ammonites, the Philistines, the Sidonians, the Amalekites, and don't forget about the Maonites, when they all oppressed you and you cried to me for help, did I not save you from their hands? But you have forsaken me and served other gods, so I will no longer save you. Why don't you try asking those gods for help? God is calling their bluff. He knows they don't want to be saved from their sin, just the consequences of their sin. Have you ever done something that you knew was wrong and then you suffered the consequences? And have you ever felt bad about the consequence but not the bad thing that you did? The Israelites are going to go on to say in verse 15, okay, 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 okay. we get it. We messed up. Just please save us. In verse 16, it says, The Israelites got rid of the foreign gods among them and served Yahweh, and he could bear Israel's misery no longer. Make no mistake, Yahweh didn't think the Israelites were actually done with their idolatry. In case you haven't read the previous ten chapters of this book, this is approximately the sixth time this has happened. Should be a slide demonstrating this point. Might be able to see there's a little subtle pattern there. Um, Instead, the author was inspired to write about God in terms that his people could understand. The author was inspired to write about God in terms that his people could understand. Trust me, I understand the concept of helping your kids even when they deliberately disobey you because they know they're in trouble now. Okay? Slide, please. This is Matthew. Don't climb on that ledge or else you're going to lose your balance and get hurt. It's basically what's going on there. End of the story, he climbed on the ledge, lost his balance, got hurt. What are you going to (laughs) do? Guys, it has nothing to do with the fact that the Israelites regret their actions, and it has everything to do with God's covenant affection for them. It has nothing to do with the fact that the Israelites regret their actions. It has everything to do with, Yah- with Yahweh's covenant affection for them. So now the stage is set for our anti-hero to enter the scene. And let me tell you, these next few verses gave me some whiplash when I first read them. There's a lot happening all at once. And at first, I wasn't exactly sure where the author is kind of taking me. So continue reading with me in verse 17. We'll read verse 17 through... Chapter 11, verse 6. When the Ammonites were called to arms and camped in Gilead, the Israelites assembled and camped at Mitzpah. 
the leaders of the people of Gilead said to each other, whoever will take the lead in attacking the Ammonites will be head over all who live in Gilead. Jephthah, the Gileadite, was a mighty warrior. His father was Gilead. His mother was a prostitute. Gilead's wife also bore him sons, and when they were grown up, he drove Jephthah away. You are not going to get any inheritance in our family, they said, because you are the son of another woman. So Jephthah fled from his brothers and settled in the land of Tov, where a gang of scoundrels gathered around him and followed him. Sometime later, when the Ammonites were fighting against Israel, the elders of Gilead went to get Jephthah from the land of Tov. Come, they said, be our commander so we can fight against the Ammonites. So pausing here, like I said, these are some pretty action-packed verses. So let's do some unpacking. Verse 8, thank you, Tim. Verse 18 says, We need a mighty warrior who will lead an attack against the Ammonites. Chapter 11, verse 1, enter Jephthah, a mighty warrior. Also, verse 1, Jephthah, the son of a prostitute. Okay, Jeff, Okay. verse 2, Jephthah's half-brothers drive him away, sad. Verse 3, Jephthah goes to the land of Tov, which means the good land. Not so bad. Also, verse 3, in the good land, Jephthah picks up a mercenary gang of scoundrels. Verse 5, hey, Jephthah, we want you back. There's so much happening in these verses, kind of back and forth. And it really feels like, to me at least, that the author is intentionally making you ask, is this Jephthah going to be a hero or an anti-hero? So for starters, there's a parallel in Jephthah's story to what we read in the previous chapter about Yahweh. Do you see it? The Israelites say, Yahweh, we've rejected you. Would you please come save us? And then the Gileadites say, Jephthah, we've rejected you. Would you please come save us? The people in both stories have cast out the very person they're going to reach out to for salvation. So there's some real promise here for Jephthah. The fact that Jephthah's mom is a prostitute is troubling, but it wouldn't be the first time that God subverts our expectations about the kind of person he's willing to use. And Jephthah flees to the good land, again promising, except for the fact that he kind of becomes a gang leader for hire. So there's just not quite a clear vision yet about how Jephthah is going to turn out. Um, let's keep reading. Starting in chapter 11, verse 7, Jephthah said back to them, Didn't you hate me and drive me from my father's house? Why do you come to me now when you're in trouble? The elders of Gilead said to him, Nevertheless, we are turning to you now. Come with us to fight the Ammonites, and you will be head over all of us who live in Gilead. Jephthah answered, Suppose you take me back to fight the Ammonites, and Yahweh gives them to me. Will I really be your head? The elders of Gilead replied, Yahweh is our witness. We will certainly do as you say. So Jephthah went with the elders to Gilead, and the people made him head and, the com and commander over them. And he repeated all his words before Yahweh in Mitzpah. Then Jephthah sent messengers to the Ammonite king with the question, What do you have against me that you attacked my country? The king of the Ammonites answered Jephthah's messengers, When Israel came up out of Egypt, they took away my land from the Arnon to the Jabbok. 
all the way to the Jordan. Now give it back peaceably. So what is Jephthah's first action as commander of the army? Does he rush straight into battle? Swords blazing? Actually, no. Jephthah takes a surprisingly diplomatic approach. He actually seeks first to negotiate a peace treaty with the Ammonites. Not bad. However, this is, uh, the, the king of the Ammonites responds by saying, no, the land where you're living right now used to be ours. Give it back. So now we're going to get to Jephthah's response. And in verses 14 through 27, we are going to get a bit of a history lesson straight out of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. So let's read, starting in verse 15, Jephthah says, well, it says, this is what Jephthah says. Israel did not take the land of Moab or the land of the Ammonites. But when they came up out of Egypt, Israel went through the wilderness to the Red Sea and on to Kadesh. Then Israel sent messengers to the king of Edom, saying, Give us permission to go through your country. But the king of Edom would not listen. They sent also to the king of Moab, and he refused. So Israel stayed at Kadesh. Next, they traveled through the wilderness, skirted the lands of Edom and Moab, passed along the eastern side of the country of Moab, and camped on the other side of the Arnon. They did not enter the territory of Moab, for the Arnon was its border. Then Israel sent messengers to Sihon, king of the Amorites, who ruled in Heshbon, and said to him, Let us pass through your country to our own place. Sihon, however, did not trust Israel to pass through his territory. He mustered all his troops and encamped at Yehaz and fought with Israel. Then Yahweh, the God of Israel, gave Sihon and his whole army into Israel's hands, and they defeated them. Israel took over all the land of the Amorites who lived in that country, capturing all of it from the Arnon to the Jabbok and from the desert to the Jordan. Now, since Yahweh, the God of Israel, has driven the Amorites out before his people Israel, what right have you, uh, have you to take it over? Will you not take what your God, Chemosh, gives you? Likewise, whatever Yahweh, our God, has given us, we will possess. Are you any better than Balak, son of Zippor, king of Moab? Did he ever quarrel with Israel or fight with them? For 300 years, Israel occupied Heshbon, Aror, <clears throat> the surrounding settlements, and all the towns along the Arnon. Why didn't you retake them during that time? I have not wronged you, but you are doing me wrong by waging war against me. Let Yahweh, the judge, decide the dispute this day between the Israelites and the Ammonites. All right, guys, how are we doing? Good? To recap. Jephthah says, look, we came out of Egypt and we were peaceable to you guys. But you fought us, unprovoked, and Yahweh gave you into our hands. And now we've been living here for like three centuries. So whatever your God, Kimosh, gave you, keep it. But our God, Yahweh, is judge. And what he says goes. Boom. <laughs> Yay, Jephthah, you get it. <laughs> Now, let's, let's just um, read about the king of Ammon's response, verse 28 through 31. The king of Ammon, however, paid no attention to the message Jephthah sent him. Then the spirit of Yahweh came on Jephthah. He crossed Gilead and Manasseh, passed through Mitzpah of Gilead, and from there he advanced against the Ammonites. And Jephthah made a vow to Yahweh, if you give the Ammonites into my hand, into my hands, whatever comes out of the door of my house to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites, will be Yahweh's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. 
it really seemed like Jephthah had his head screwed on straight until this moment. He had just said, Yahweh is judge. He decides all things. But then he tries to twist his arm. And not only that, he twists his arm in a really weird way. Do you guys see this? That Jephthah is trying to make a deal with Yahweh who's already on his team. If you're reading the Bible as a moral handbook, where characters show you the way to live a godly life, you might be tempted to give Jephthah the benefit of the doubt here. But we have to address the elephant in the room. What did Jephthah actually vow here, and what did he think was going to happen? What did Jephthah actually vow here, and what did he think was going to happen? Verse 31, whatever comes out my door, sorry, the door of my house, to meet me when I return in triumph from the Ammonites will be Yahweh's, and I will sacrifice it as a burnt offering. We might be tempted to think Jephthah had hoped an animal would come out his front door. But problem with that assumption is why would an animal be coming out of his house? They didn't have dom- like domesticated animals back then, and he wouldn't be letting farm animals into his house. He most likely had hoped that a servant would come out. What I'm trying to point out here is the uncomfortable reality that Jephthah's plan all along is human sacrifice. So the question becomes, why does he make this vow? Why does he make this vow? And we're going to finish the chapter here and see how things play out. Verse 32. Then Jephthah went over to fight the Ammonites, and Yahweh gave them into his hands. He devastated 20 towns from Aror to the vicinity of Manith, as far as abel Keramim. Thus Israel subdued Ammon. When Jephthah returned to his home in Mitzpah, who should come out to meet him but his daughter, dancing to the sound of timbrels? She was only a child. Except for her, he had, um, he had neither son nor daughter. When he saw her, he tore his clothes and cried, Oh no, my daughter, you have brought me down, and I am devastated. I have made a vow to Yahweh that I cannot break. My father, she replied, you have given your word to Yahweh, do to me just as you promised, so that Yahweh, so now that Yahweh has avenged you of your enemies, the Ammonites. But grant me this one request, she said. Give me two months to roam the hills and weep with my friends, because I will never marry. You may go, he said, and he let her go for two months. She and her friends went to the hills and wept, because she would never marry. After the two months, she returned to her father, and he did to her as he had vowed, and she was a virgin. From this comes the Israelite tradition that each year the young women of Israel go out for four days to commemorate the daughter of Jephthah the Gileadite. Guys, this is one of the most tragic and confusing stories in the Bible, and that's saying something. Jephthah is a man who's supposed to be a leader of Israel, and he sacrifices his own daughter as a burnt offering to Yahweh. Again, I want to ask the question, why does Jephthah make this vow? The answer is that Jephthah was more aligned with the ways of his culture than he was with the word of his God. He was more aligned with the ways of his culture than he was with the word of his God. Remember our passage from Deuteronomy 12, 
I'm going to reread that passage for us. Verse 30. Be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring about their gods, saying, how do these nations serve their gods? We'll do the same. You must not worship Yahweh your God in their way, because in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things Yahweh hates. And if you read one more sentence in this passage, it says, they even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. The Israelites had spent years learning from the pagan cultures around them. And that was the world that Jephthah was born into. And this is the tricky thing about Jephthah's story, because it really seemed like there's a chance that Jephthah could be committed to Yahweh. He knows the law. He gives an account straight from the Torah. He has some understanding of Israel's purpose, but he's fallen victim to the human tendency to merge worldviews. The word we can, refer, we can use to refer to this is syncretism. Syncretism. Syncretism is the combination of multiple schools of thought into one single worldview. When Jephthah appeals to Yahweh through a vow of human sacrifice, he evidences his syncretism. Jephthah has combined what he knows about appealing to the other nation's gods with what he knows about appealing to Israel's God. And in doing so, he does one of the most hideous and insidious things the nations would do. Child sacrifice is one of the most repeated things that Yahweh warns the Israelites against. He makes it abundantly clear how much he hates it. Jephthah's story concludes over the first seven verses of chapter 12. And somehow things actually get worse for Israel. Jephthah gets into a really petty spat with another tribe in Israel, Ephraim, that leads into a full-on civil war because he doesn't try to resolve the conflict. Verse 6 says, 42,000 Israelites from the tribe of Ephraim were killed at that time by Jephthah and his gang of scoundrels. 42,000 Israelites. This story leaves you with the question, who did more damage to Israel, the Ammonites or Jephthah? I mean, this is ridiculous, guys. Jephthah is clearly the product of an Israel that has surrounded itself with such violent cultures that it itself becomes violent against its own nation. Israel is in full-on self-destruction mode here. I really hope that as we've gone through this series, you've seen in the Bible, these stories are just begging for a better leader. They're looking desperately for the one who rejects the temptations all humans can't seem to say no to. And by now, you know exactly where we're headed. This is the gospel, guys. Jesus is the good news. Jesus is the fulfillment of all the hopes and dreams of the Old Testament narratives. Like Jephthah, Jesus was rejected by his own brothers in his hometown. Like Jephthah, Jesus amassed a following of some pretty sketchy young men, actually. Like Jephthah, Jesus saved his people from oppression. But unlike Jephthah, Jesus became a culture setter rather than a culture adopter. Jesus became a culture setter rather than a culture adopter. 
Jephthah took his life in his own hands so that he could take others' lives. Jesus committed, uh, submitted his life so that he could save others' lives. Jephthah fell victim to the temptation to pick and choose the practices of his culture and the practices of his religion. I want us to take a look at Jesus' worldview. And there are a few better places that Jesus explains this so clearly as in the Sermon on the Mount. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. First book in the New Testament. Matthew 5, starting at verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And the rest of his sermon is going to teach us how. You may notice that Jesus will start a lot of his sentences with the phrase, you have heard that it was said, fill in the blank. And then he'll quote from the law and the prophets. He's teaching on the Old Testament. However, Jesus then follows up this quotation by saying, but I tell you, fill in the blank. Now remember verse 17, Jesus says he came to fulfill the Old Testament. He's not inventing something brand new here. He's taking the logic of the Old Testament laws and bringing them to their full conclusion. So look at verses 38 through 42 with me. Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. We are getting a glimpse of Jesus' kingdom in these words. Sometimes we'll talk about Jesus giving a, a challenging teaching to the people of his culture, like something that we take for granted, um, but it was a brand new concept to them. I think that this paragraph has to be just about as challenging, if not more so, to our culture. Our culture does pretty much the exact opposite of what Jesus says to do here. Much like Jephthah, Jephthah was an eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth sort of guy. He was a man of violence and mercilessness. And look at the next section of verses with me, 43 through 48. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what, more are, you, what, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. In Chi Alpha, one of our favorite resources is a book called Habitudes by Tim Elmore. And one of the chapters discusses the difference between thermostats and thermometers. A thermostat, you might know, sets the temperature, whereas a thermometer merely reports the temperature. Did you know that it takes a lot more effort and intentionality to be a culture setter than a culture reflector? It's hard to be a thermostat and go against the status quo of your culture. Jephthah was a thermometer. He responded to the culture around him and reflected it. 
Jesus, however, took the more difficult path of being a thermostat. He understood the culture around him and still chose to live by the values of God's kingdom. Matthew 5, 46. If you love only those who love you, and if you greet only your own people, are you really any different from those who don't know God? Guys, as Christians, it's our job to be thermostats in our world. It is our job to set the temperature at Matthew 5 degrees Fahrenheit. So as we... As we start to land the plane this evening, I want to ask you all a question. Show of hands, who here has experienced God in a life-changing way by being a part of this community this year? Okay, who here has been challenged to actually change something in the way you live in the context of this community, your core, your one-on-ones? Does anyone feel confident that without any Christian community all on your own, you would have experienced genuine Christ-like transformation in your life this year? Friends, let me say, it is possible to hold the temperature at a consistent level for some time on your own, but it becomes much easier when you can regularly surround yourselves, yourself with others who share the same temperature, the same values, the same pursuit of Jesus. Our world is full of opportunities to assimilate and lose focus on these truths that we know. And you know, any of us can actually fall victim to this. This is is actually the blessing of community. I think that community is the antidote to syncretism. You actually have someone to tell you, stop acting like the rest of the world, you dummy. And I'm not suggesting that we adopt an us versus them mentality. I'm not suggesting that we don't even like learn from non-Christians or listen to only Christian podcasts. I'm also not suggesting that we live our lives in a Christian bubble. We've talked about this many times throughout the year, about the importance of reaching out to those outside of our community and being a blessing to everyone around us. So there's this balance as Christians between coming together to gather as a community and going out on mission. What I want to warn us against is incorporating cultural norms into our lives without a community to help us check those behaviors and hold us accountable. We need someone to tell us we're veering off course. Jephthah had no one in his life that could hold him accountable to his syncretized perspectives. But Jesus designed things in such a way that we would live in community so that we could hold each other together. I need people in my life that will tell me, Taylor, you're off base, dude. You really think this is something Jesus approves of? For our reflection questions tonight, I want us to think about the present, and I want us to think forward to the summer and beyond, especially for those of us who are graduating. So for the present, what sources am I receiving the most input from? What sources am I receiving the most input from? Take inventory, guys. Where am I getting the majority of my information from, and is it drawing me closer to God, or does it make me think and act in ways different from Jesus' values? For the upcoming summer, what can I do to ensure continued, consistent, godly community in my life? If you're staying in town, keep coming to Summer Chi Alpha. If you're going home for the summer, make a commitment to getting involved in a church community. 
Maybe you could plan to get together with some of your Chi Alpha friends a few times over the summer in person, or you have a weekly phone call with someone who will encourage you. How will you set up accountability for yourself this summer? Who will you stay connected with, and what community will you continue your spiritual growth in? I'm going to welcome up the worship team. And as we go into our time of reflection and worship, I'm going to pray. Lord Jesus, we just want to take so seriously um, what you have written in your book for us. Um, It's hard not to read the story about Jephthah and be really deeply impacted and shocked, honestly. Um, And God, I think sometimes it's easy for us to distance ourselves from these stories and think, um, there's no way that I can relate to this. But God, I just want you to actually lovingly convict us now. Help us to see where we hold the syncretism. Where do we have inconsistencies in our hearts? Where do we have split allegiances? God, I pray that you'd reveal those right now. You'd reveal them tonight through worship. And God, I also just pray um, a prayer of thanks for this blessing of our community. Um, God, I pray for everyone here that we would be able to continue being a part of a community um, as we look forward to the summer and and as we look forward to the rest of our lives. Um, So God, I pray that you would be honored by our worship for the rest of this evening. Help our hearts to be completely devoted to you, Lord Jesus. Amen.